Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is the 19th of July. It is, of course, Sunday, as every time when we release a new episode. This is episode three of our season five, and its title is A Magic Reality. Our guest on today's show is... New Zealand-born but British-living magician, artist, animist, as she calls herself, Charlotte Rogers. More about her in a few moments. I'm very happy to have you back here on the Thoughts Hermit podcast. Welcome, welcome to all of you who are here for the first time and welcome back to all of those who return regularly here. And I see more and more of you go back and listen to also former um, episodes. And that's very good and very nice also to see. Right. Um, well, for all of those who don't know how to find us and especially how to find the previous episodes, you can find all the information on my website on the Thoth Hermes podcast website, which is www.thoshermes.com and you must spell that T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. There you can find all the information about all the episodes with the show notes that go with them, with the information about the music we play and also you can send me feedback from the website there you find not only a form, a custom form where you can send the message directly, you will also find a voicemail. And it's always nice to hear your voices. So that would be lovely to get more voicemail from you. Just click on there and you have one minute to talk to me. Talking about sound, um, thanks again to those of you who are sending me your music. And uh, uh, I will also play again today one of the three pieces, which is by one of our listeners. And uh, two other pieces are two other pieces today. Um, but um, more and more send me that music. And in all the coming weeks, we will play music by our listeners. And I think that's a great community participation here on this podcast i really like that continue send me your information and uh, i'm happy to play your music in the show just be patient because it will take a month or two before it comes to your track because there is little a little backup which i'm very happy about okay i announced lightly last week that I will do a little kind of, well, let's me call me the Patreon Challenge now. That's its new name, the Patreon Challenge. I said I will stop talking about becoming a patron here on the intro of the podcast at the day that we have 4% of our weekly listeners who will be patrons. It's only 4%, so it's not really high number. Okay, so for your information, at the moment, we are almost at 3000 per week, which I must say, I'm very happy about that has increased rather dramatically over the last few weeks. 
Great news. Um, that means if, well, once we get to 110, 120 patrons, that would be the moment where I stop talking about becoming a patron. Um, so maybe that's uh, some help to those who think I talk too much about that. Okay, but thanks to all of you. It's 41. We have a new record this week. 41 patrons we already have for the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash thpodcast. And you find the Thought Hermes podcast case page to become a patron there. Or you go directly on the Thought Hermes website that I mentioned before and you click on the Patreon button. And from $1 per show upwards, you are part of our supporters. If you want to do a one-off donation, that's also possible. You have a donate button on our website and that will lead you also the right way to do that. Thank you for this. And once again, thank you to all of you who have already done so. I also want to mention again, and you might have seen it on the Facebook um, page of Thoth Hermes, because yes, of course, we are also on Facebook and Twitter. On the Facebook page, you will already see the dates and the speakers and the titles of the lectures in our upcoming Thoth Hermes Academy, Academy, which starts on August the 5th. And uh, sorry, August the 2nd, sorry about that, August the 2nd, Carl Abramson will be our first speaker in the Thought Hermes Academy. The Thought Hermes Academy is going to be a live event, a live lecture by Carl Abramson on individuation magic. And after that, uh, there is also a live discussion of you, the listeners, you who have uh, inscribed yourself for that event. And uh, more information is on the Facebook page and also the names of the four subsequent lectures, lecturers and the titles of their lectures. So go there and I think in two or three days you will we will open the booking for that because you have to book a ticket for that to participate in that great event called the Thoth Hermes Academy. Good. Okay, it's time for some music now. And as I said, one of the three pieces today, and it is the first one actually, who is by one of our Facebook friends and listeners here. Um, he is called Hassan Ismail. Um, he is Lebanese, Phoenician also, as he called himself. He is born in February 1993, a really young guy in Lebanon, Sidon. And he has... Since he was 10 years old, a mysterious love for mysticism and the search for truth uh, to solve that mystery called life. And he does that with a lot of moral values along his path. And he's a self-taught artist that was able to discover his music through contemplation and being one with music. Today, he lives in Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States. And he likes the place Phoenix because it reminds him of ancient Phoenicia, that he is originally from, as he says. He performs locally there in Arizona, and so far he has published three albums. The latest is called Entropia, which dates from last year, 2019. Uh, what we hear today is from his first album. The first album was called The Ancient and was released in 2017. And uh, the title that we are gonna hear today is called Babylon Gates. 
So I really like his music. It's it's very strong and meditative at the same time. Um, so, and I just wanted also to point out that we will hear more from Hassan Ismail in maybe two or three weeks on this show. I will have him as a featured artist back again then in two or three weeks. So, but today it's Babylon Gates from the 2017 album The Ancient by Hassan Ismail. And I can only say, enjoy.
Babylon Gates from the 2017 album The Ancient by Hassan Ismail, who is originally from Lebanon or Phoenicia, as he prefers to say, and who resides in Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States. And we will hear more from him in two or three weeks on this show. Okay, now it's time to present Charlotte Rogers to you. Today's show, as I have mentioned before, is called A Magic Reality, and I think that sums a little bit up what uh, Charlotte is talking about today. She's an artist. She's an artist and an author who is, as she says herself, also an animist and non-dominational practicing witch and magician. And she conceived and uh, co-edited three books, a contemporary Western book of the dead. Well, that she co-edited, uh, but she wrote herself The Bloody Sacrifice and P is for Prostitution. Uh, those books, you will find the links on uh, the show notes on our webpage, are really highly interesting, especially to me. Uh, the Bloody Sacrifice is something that is very particular for us occultists here. She has also had a lot of work published in magazines and she writes very interesting blogs. And as you know, I now always try to read a few um, lines from books that uh, our guests here have published and written. What I will do today, I will not read from her book, but I will read from her blog. And believe me, it's not because she mentions me there. She wrote that piece of blog a few days after we did the interview that you hear today. But it's interesting because it touches a subject that I believe can be very close to many of you at this moment, at the moment of the coronavirus going around the planet. And well, let me just read this piece of blog that I find highly interesting, this piece of blog by Charlotte Rogers, who will be our guest in a minute on this show. It's called The Dead Have Been Bothering Me Lately. Perhaps it's a punch that hadn't completely connected until the lockdown eased and I moved beyond my isolated bubble and started to take stock of a wider picture. Intellectually, I have long been aware of the huge number of people that have died and are still dying alone and frightened. The structures that society, religion and spirituality provide during the death process have all dissolved and in this ultimate free fall there are none of us the usual hands to hold. Many of these supports are a way of assuaging fear of what happens in the act of dying and beyond that. When I have read the Tibetan Bardo Todol for the dead, for instance, from my very layman's perspective, although ostensibly being about guidance of future incarnation, much of it is focused on encouragement of the dying or recent dead, not to be confused or frightened. I have been present at the moment of the death of others, and whilst there are records of people smiling peacefully and passing from this life, in my experience, it is similar to birth in that there is a flailing and struggling as everything separates and breaks down. I've been thinking of this huge and prevalent fear, wondering where it goes and if it is left lingering in the empty spaces. Sites of fatal accidents often have offerings left to mark the place and the event and also to honor the life departed, thus preventing the space from being a fear-filled darkness. 
I was discussing this with the funeral celebrant Rudolf Berger, who told me how some elderly people who don't have coronavirus are dying because they no longer had visits or human contact and slip away after losing their desire to cling on to life. He also talked of how unnerving it is to mark with words someone's life and death when the mourners staring back at him were masked. I wondered if grief is locked in by those masks. A friend who is a priest from another tradition talked of being unable to source various offerings for the loa that he works with due to lockdown and consequent supply shortages. The usual solace for some in time of disease is found in churches of various denominations, but for months the doors of these places have been closed. Years ago, I spoke at a conference where a respected American academic said, if you want to destroy all your credibility and all chances of funding, say that you want to study what happens to us after we die. And I myself wrote on the topic in some depth and was particularly interested in how identity and strength in self and community was solidified with strong rituals, acknowledgements and honoring of the dead. I realize there will no doubt be moments of silence introduced by governments to acknowledge and remember all of those taken by the virus, but will the lonely and fearful processes of passing also be considered? Perhaps awareness that fear feeds fear and loving focus and the lightly placed flower will help set free some of these frightened dead and free the living as well. A great text by our guest today, Charlotte Rogers, and a bit longer than usual, but I think given that it's a very, a very actual text and something very important that we should talk about here, I thought I would give it the time that was needed to read it to you. But now we're going to meet Charlotte herself. We're going to meet her in her hometown bath, and I think you should be looking forward to that interview. We will come back here with some music in about 32, 33 minutes into the interview. And now let's go and meet Charlotte Rogers. Here comes the interview. I would like to say hello this evening now to our guest on the South Hermes podcast on this episode. And I am extremely happy to welcome Charlotte Rogers here today on this podcast. Charlotte, who is talking to us tonight from uh, the south of England, I believe, from Bath. Uh, and yes, hello, Charlotte. Good to have you here with us. That's wonderful to be here. Thank you for asking me. Mm. Well, of pleasure. And so, Charlotte, you are... A visual artist, uh, you are a practicing, would you call it magician or cultist? What would you choose as a word? I still use the word magician, even though my practice has changed so much from the more formal sense, but still definitely magician. And I'm old fashioned. I still like using a K in my magic. Okay, yes. Okay, okay, good. So magic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, you you are also a very interesting blogger um, I must say I've, I've learned a lot from your blog recently and uh, your art is also a very particular art you work a lot with the vision of death and with 
animals that you create out of, well, I don't say too much for the moment, but um, we'll speak about that in a minute. But why don't we start a bit earlier, earlier in, in also historically, so to speak, earlier in your life? What always interests me, how people who do practice magic in whatever form they do it, how they how that came into their lives. Um, how did it happen in the first place? Where did you feel for the first time um, that magic or something special happened around you, which became part of your life? How did you become the Charlotte Rogers that you are today? Um, where did it all start? Um, I, I believe that all human beings are born magical. I believe that we're born magical beings. But a magical perception per se, it's a way It's a way we assimilate information, basically, and everyone has a degree of it, but some of us more than others. So for me, it was the way I perceived reality. So from a very small child, I was quite mythical. I had a creative bent, but it was more to do with, with reading, and I, I used to read the Bible. Uh, it was a children's Old Testament, um, which was pretty gory, actually. I liked fairy tales, mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, belie- I believed in fairies, I suppose, um, fairies with teeth. New Zealand was quite an isolated place, and when someone is quite isolated in themselves, and has difficulty relating to other human beings, the nature is quite overwhelming. The land is very powerful. There's a lot of space. And I would see a lot, I suppose. I just was a very aware child. Mm-hmm. So, so you grew up in the countryside. Did I get that correctly or...? In New Zealand, when I was growing up, pretty much everything was countryside. Even the major cities were small. Um, this right. was growing up in the, the 60s, 70s, and then my teen years in the 80s. Um, New Zealand has a lot of space. So even though I lived in the cities, I mean, you could drive an hour in any direction and you'd be in the middle of nowhere. When I was older and I used to go hitchhiking, you could be hours and see no traffic. You'd see nothing. And I think when I moved to places like England, that's one of the things that I freaked out is there's, you can't just look and there's nothing until you reach a point on the horizon. There's always filled spaces. In New Zealand, you can just look to infinity almost. Not as much as Australia. You know, Australia's got more of a really aged edge, but New Zealand is an interesting country. And there's a lot of space. Uh, I think we had no mammals, no mammals at all. They were all introduced. And it's, uh, yeah, it's filled with a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. And it's filled with a lot of spirits. And they all want to be heard. And I, I was aware of that. I was quite imaginative. By the age of seven, which is the proverbial, I think, age of reason, isn't it? Um, I was actively exploring um, more structured, magical sort of understanding. Um, I think Man Man, Myth and Magic, there was a series 
uh, of magazines that you could collect of Man, Myth and Magic. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, I got a subscription, which my father went absolutely ballistic at when he realized what was in it because there were sky-clad pagans and I think they were, I think they were gardenerian witches dancing around in circles. Um, and he was quite puritanical. But um, And that was where I saw my first image of the Hand of Glory. And bear in mind, I was seven, and it's where, this is interesting, I saw the first sigilization by Austin Osman Spear that I'd ever seen. And later on in my early teens, I was working with those sigils, and it wasn't till like 30 years later and I came to England that I realized I must have absorbed that when I was seven. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eight, ten years later, I was actively utilizing it without sort of being able to reference it to this point I'd picked it up as a child. Right. You were saying, I was going to ask you how your surroundings were reacting to that. And you already mentioned your father. And Mm -hmm. as you said, you had been reading the Bible. I had kind of supposed that there must be some Christian family background because because uh, many of us in 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 that generation, I think, have had that Mm -hmm. experience. But um, to your and were there people around you, other people than your father, family or not family, who were supportive of that? Or were you all on your own with your way of perceiving and reacting to reality? I was on my own. Um, mm-hmm. I, but I suppose to a certain extent, I used to go to, I went to a lot of schools. I went to 15 schools between the age of like five and 11. So because I had that degree of isolation, I could do my own thing and I was very academic. So I was left to my own devices to a certain extent, very precocious. But also um, I lived with my grandmother a lot and she was a rabid Catholic and I went to Catholic schools because they thought that someone with my sort of mind and absent-mindedness should be within a structured environment. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I was probably the same as I am now. I was very analytical. So I would mm-hmm. step back within my, and within, inside myself and observe these rituals and um, how powerful they were, the potentialities they had. I mean, this sounds very precocious for a child, but this is actually what I thought. Um, I was aware of the inherent power with the bells and the smells and the robes. Of course. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, But I was also aware of how easily that could be exploited. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I made my first Holy Communion when I was seven, and I never got confirmed. I actually, um, I think I was about 11 years old, and I, I refused to get confirmed because mm-hmm. I, it just wasn't the right thing. Um, I'd already chosen my name, Martin de Porres, um, which did have some relevance later in life, but uh, I, it just wasn't the right thing. And I still have a lot of gratitude towards Catholicism, um, even though, as with every belief system, humanity, well, human beings and the whole power thing can mess around with it and corrupt it. Yeah. But it gave me a real insight into the beauty and power of ritual. 
mm-hmm. and all the accoutrements. Yeah. Now, interesting, you're saying that I don't want to talk about myself, but I work now as a, as a funeral celebrant. And I do that, of course, for people who do not want to have a priest. But of course, I also observe how the Catholic priests here, we are a very Catholic country here in Austria, and how they do the death ritual. And that's something we might talk about a little bit later. But um, also those rituals are very strong if they were only practiced in a ritualistic way and not just in a, in a very exoteric way. Right. I'm sure you experienced. Oh, yeah. It's tragic when ritual is performed. I think that's what really stopped me being confirmed is I was aware that there was something, there was this potential for power and transformation. Again, this sounds odd for a young child to think, but this is what I believed. But I was very aware that I was sitting, standing, kneeling, reciting, and I didn't believe. And that just felt wrong. And also, I couldn't understand sin. It made (laughs) no sense to me. I just could not grasp the idea of sin. I mean, God, my Mm teachers must have gone ballistic with me because it just, seriously, I don't know if I'm slightly on some disassociative level or something. I, I still, I just did not understand this concept of sin. Um, well, yeah, I still don't. Uh, I don't want to say understand you. That yeah. would be a bit easy, but yeah. uh, I think I know perfectly well what you mean. Mm. Yeah, um, I share. I share a lot of that. Um, you said something that really just interests me deeply because um, you said you were an analytical person mm. at the same time you were a very magical person. Let's put it that way. With the K, um, and that might seem at first sight um, almost as a contradiction to many. Um, I personally, my path comes more from the hermetic side and I understand, I think I understand what you mean, uh, but I would like to hear you on that. Um, how do, does an, an analytical being go together with magic in your point of view? What's, what's your sense of that? How would you explain that? Uh, for a start, I'm very experiential. Um, I, I believe, oh, it's the wrong way to articulate. I was talking to someone the other day. The suspension of disbelief is very important. Um, I, I want, Years ago, I used to mentor someone magically. And I said, mm-hmm. first step, read up about cult religions. Learn how to look at information and how to analyze it intellectually and also learn how to follow your instinct and they can work together. Um, And especially if you're a solo practitioner, you need to be able to step back from yourself on occasion too, because if you're going to record what you're doing and you're by yourself, you need to have ability to sort of almost step outside yourself. Um, Of course. Yes. Yes. And on one hand, there is, we're working spiritually but also we're, we're working on a human level too, and you do need to have a degree of analysis about that. So you need to follow your instinct, but you need to use mm-hmm. your head too. I mean, it, it's, it's a constant juggling act. And, you know, magic is, I mean, as with yourself, there have been periods in my life when I was younger and, you know, the accessible information was very ritualized. You know, I 
important teaching. Yeah. Golden Dawn, Crowley, you know, very academic, the tree of life. And that is, there is a degree of analysis and there is a, new, a degree of intellectualizing. Um, if you look at a, a good scientist, for instance, I've argued with people about this, a good science scientist is both analytical and has imagination. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. And they can work yeah, yeah. together. You have vision, you have imagination, and then you use your mind to, to pull it all in together. And your mind, to a degree, can keep you safe. Um, and I, I've always been like that. It can be problematic on occasion. But I've found, for me, it works very, very well, especially when it comes to the way human beings form groups and work with belief systems. Um, yeah, well, that that, uh, that was my next question, mm -hmm. exactly, because um, I was going to ask you if you had at any time in that phase or later on worked magic in a group or if you were always a solitary worker, because I wondered how you reacted to groups with the with the things you just said, because belief systems can also be built up by magical groups very quickly and become a danger to magic. Um. On one level, there is nothing more exciting for someone whose whole life has been de dedicated to a creative, magical path. My whole life has been. There's no two ways mm -hmm. about it. It's who I am and it's the way I express. And when you find people right. who you kin, who are on your wavelength, there's no buzz like it. You know, the excitement yeah. and that you generate energy just through conversation. Yeah, sure. Sure. Groups are another matter. I think when I was very young, in my teens, I was a member of a few groups. And um, in those days, I suppose th this interests me. We were probably practicing something that, you know, considering the era and on the amalgamation of information and then the politics of what was going on at that time, it was very light, probably chaos magic. And we... Mm -hmm you know, New Zealand style, because in those days there was no internet. I mean, it was the back of beyond. Um, and we worked with this amalgamation of information, with the land, and we took a lot of drugs. And it was a big mess. Yeah. And also teenage yeah. hormones too. You throw all that into the mix. Very exciting, big mess. Um, mm -hmm. But there wasn't so much a power play that I've come across in later groups. Um And yeah, that was fun, but it was a bit of a disaster and there were some casualties. But I think the people would have been casualties anyway. You know, they would have found something mm -hmm. that would have messed themselves up. Sure. Later on, yeah. I've come across a few cult groups. And again, the whole disassociative ability to intellectualize and be rational has helped me a lot when I've realized that someone is trying to mess with my head um, and I've stepped back. And then in my 30s, and obviously there's the occasional group ritual one comes across if you're of a magical type and you go to various conferences. Um, yeah. Generally, they're pretty innocuous, but every now and then you come across one that's a really, really good ritualist who knows their stuff and has the confidence mm. to just get a little bit, you know, like I went to one, I think, in Oxford and – um. You know, it was an open ritual and he was, it was an Okean and he was, it was stonking. 
And then another conference I went, a very good ritualist again. And I thought, Hecate, and you don't do open rituals with, with a goddess or god or spirit form, you know, that yeah. beautiful, yeah. you know, completely mm. safe. Um, yeah. And then I've been to debacles. But, and, but in my 30s, I, I came across a magical group and everyone was from a different tradition. We all took turns to construct the rituals. We worked around the traditional wheel of the year. Um, and magic traditions, um, musician, magicians, chaos musician, magicians. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a choir, which is a Cornish tradition. And there were no power plays. But every person was not just a magical practitioner of various types. We're all artists. Right. It was a lot of fun. And there was no, it wasn't hierarchical. And that group had been running in various forms. Um, it was an offshoot of something called uh, Ogdos. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, they've been running for God, 30 years. Beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. Wow. And there was none of that whole power play thing. You know, it's first magical lesson, isn't it? Power. You know, you, you, absolutely. Yeah, you're plugging in, and you is nothing like that buzz, but it's really addictive. Um, and, yeah, and that's where the danger lies. Yeah. Absolutely. No, but I, I find it interesting what you're saying because because especially when we go back to to your to your use and to your first experiences, um, if you you have, seem to have had a very natural approach and also avoiding the danger, the too high danger to get into those power plays mm-hmm. because you seem to have managed um, perfectly well in not to getting into that, right? I, I suppose I have been lucky um, or maybe I just have intimacy issues. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I... I, I, I wrote about it recently, actually. I don't know where I wrote about it. Mm-hmm. When I am in a group, some of my own insecurities come up, and that can be a very good thing sometimes because I, I'm very challenged about my belief systems, about how I operate, <clears throat> about whether I'm using the right language, whether I'm using the right pronunciation, yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> when it's just me, and the spirits or God forms or however you want to <clears throat> articulate them when it's just me, it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes those challenges can be a, a good thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, keeping me on my toes. And as I said, there's nothing like a group energy um, when it's the right people. It's the right people, definitely. Yeah, I have definitely. been lucky. When I was younger, there was the occasional problem um, – there's, I again, it's a simplification. There's two types of people. There's a generalization and, and with magical work, and those who are the batteries, and those who can work with the energy yeah. a battery gives out. Discharge. Yeah, yeah, yeah And yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a battery. Mm-hmm. Well, I was when I was mm-hmm. younger. I don't know. Postmenopausal. It's a different thing, and I'm not just talking yeah. in like sexual terms. Um, but I can generate a lot of energy, and yeah. So that I was attractive to, because I get things done. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I used to anyway. Um, so that I think you still do. Yeah. So that could make me an asset to some groups. Um, 
Right. So, yeah, right. it's a bit rock and roll. But, again, I, I just was very, very aware um, of the games that people play. And it, it's – Do you – do, do you have? Uh, do you have? I, I mean, maybe that's difficult if you, if it's such a general question mm -hmm. like I put it now. But um, do you have some counsel to give to a young person, or especially maybe to a young female mm -hmm. person, because uh, they are even in more danger of being of getting into that power into that power game in mm -hmm. a bad way. Um, when they start magical work nowadays, in these days, and things have changed a little. Mm -hmm. bit, to the to the better end to the worst, suppose. And um, do you have a? Do you, what would you say to such a person? What what should she um, be careful of? What should she look after to get onto the right path for her? That's so. It's so difficult. I mean, God, nowadays there's mobile phones, and I I think one of the big lessons I learned especially when it comes to things like um, working with sexual magic, working with a sexual yeah. current, for instance, yeah. Um, yeah. and also working with, with I don't know, uh, blood and, you know, flagellation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's actually more of a challenge to work with things that are softer. You know, it's like it's a, it's a whole proving yourself thing about how hardcore you are is to do the really, really hard way that, and the quite punishing way. So mm -hmm. I think Israel Regado said anyone who wants to really commit themselves to a magical path, do some concurrent form of psychoanalysis or some form of, of self-seeking. Um, some, you know, for me, I, I did various things, you know, I, I don't drink or take drugs anymore. So I, I did a 12-step program and I, that helped me a lot for structure in my life, but it helped me with a degree of um, learning about myself and about certain patterns of situations I'd get into. And hmm. even though it doesn't ostensibly seem to ally with a magical path, it does help if you know yourself and your predilections um, right. and problems you can get into. And one thing, and I've always recommended it, and I alluded to it earlier, read up on cult religions. Yes. Look at the way yes. they operate. Yes. Look at the criterion of a cult leader and also look at the criterion of a follower and figure out what sort of person you are. Do you have a tendency to follow someone? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a need no, no. to follow that, you know, just – um. And I, know yourself and know your enemy. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I know it wasn't until my 30s, depending on what path you follow, I know within the Thelemic um, sort of tradition or the Thelemic practice, it was took me a long time, not till my 30s, early 40s, that I actually met female practitioners within that tradition. That I don't know if tradition is the right way to put it, that I could actually talk to. Um, and at that stage, it was, um, God, this is, it, it was almost like I felt there was a degree of competition because there were a, there were a lot less women within that community than men. It was male-dominated. I don't know if it still is. This was a few years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and so 
it's like a divide and rule. So it's harder to talk to women about where they're at sure. and if they had similar experiences and if someone perhaps was a little bit tricky and, um, you know, and then when someone, when a woman is older and, you know, it, it's difficult putting this into male, female sort of thing. Um, but Of course, very difficult. Yeah. yeah, but people don't talk about these things so much, I think. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes, sometimes these things are like another initiation. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really don't like referring it to as such, but sometimes confronting the dodgy group and still sticking to being a magical person and pursuing a magical sort of path, it, it's like a, like an initiation of sorts. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah. part of a magical life. It's not pleasant. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of magical people, regardless of gender, come up against this sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. So if it's who you are, just hang on in there. And just because mm-hmm. one person or a few people are dicks or you know, power crazed and have issues, do not let them grind you down because if your reality is a magical reality, just hang on to that and don't let anyone else take that away from you, no matter how how yuck they might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got you. Got you. Well, yeah. great, great advice, I think. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's even in many ritualistic forms of occult groups and, and magic, um, you, you find the moment where you, and it's often at a rather late stage in, in a kind of a degree system that you find the fight as the essential, as the essential point of that degree. Mm. And that's, that's refers very closely, I think, to what you were just saying. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, thank you. Thank you. That, that was, that was really interesting. Now we have speak, have to speak a little bit about art now. And um, what interests me is how, how did art come into your life and the art when did you realize that you that practicing the art um is your life um i don't know if you can separate it completely from your magical approach in the beginning at least as a starter um but but uh, maybe you can i don't know just just let us know and and when when did it happen i I was always, as I said, I was creative, but I liked words. I liked the structure of words from a very young age. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I wrote a lot. Um, and you still do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But with magical practice, I think, you know, most traditions at some point you have to start making things. You make your tools, for instance, um, or you make a fetish or you make charms, you know, depending on what your direction is. So it, it's a part of the process. And I, in my teens, I made fetishes. So I was always interested in taxidermy. So I made fetishes. fetishes. And it was part of the, okay. I don't know what you, the countercultural scene I was in at the time. Yeah. Uh, which was a bit like New Age Travelers or something, you know. We, so we collected bones and very Mad Max. Um, but I allied it also with my magical practice. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, I sort of read tarot cards and take drugs and, and it's a banishing ritual and play with bones. Um, yeah. Not very healthy, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, and then... I, I, it just evolved. And then in my 30s, early 30s, I just got back into it. I'd stepped back from active magical practice. I'd kept up the basics that one has in the practice, um, my yoga, my meditation, my tarot, palmistry. Mm-hmm. But I'd sort of stepped back from active magical practice. And I... And the moment I decided to commit myself, I made a pact to go back to my past because it was like um, I missed it. It was like I wasn't a whole person again. It was like I'd locked away part of myself. Um, And when I committed to actively pursuing my magical work again, the artistic element, the creative artistic elements sort of came more and more to the forefront. And uh, I, I, at the magical conference, the woman, magical woman's conference, I, I spoke on this and I called it like our magical DNA. Um, it's twin serpents, like the, the DNA helix. And it's the twin serpents of magic and art. And they're dancing with each other, but they're also catalyzing each other. So the more, I submerged myself in my magical practice and the more, then the more my art was catalyzed and vice versa. And they actually became one. And I used to think there was a dividing line between magic and art. And then I realized there's not. The the more submerged you are in your magical reality, your active magical reality, the more your art is catalyzed and it just it just becomes one beautiful thing well you know tricky sometimes because you know there's ups and downs um as with any creative process um i I will say creative progressive creative process i think progressive is a great word i'm not necessarily talking forward and back or a straight line yeah but it's changing and it does can you can can you just define progressive uh, a little bit in that way what you mean it has directed movement of some sort Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i'm not going to throw one word around words like great work or anything like that or no 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 no, no, no. but it is directed even when that direction might be unclear there is some sort of direction um Mm -hmm. have no idea what it is um No, I I think a lot of magical practices perhaps ally with a lie, ally with ages in life. You know, when we're teenagers, chaos magic, you know, this. And, you know, some people as they get older, they might tend towards sort of tantric or Buddhist or, um, you know, and and maybe that's what it's about. I don't know. Um, But it is progressive, it's taking us somewhere. or maybe it's just taking us to who we're supposed to be. I'm not sure, but definitely magic and art are one and the same. Um, and the more, more, more I follow those paths, I realize it's just one path. Um, yeah, and it gives me a lot of joy. Once, once I really 
clicked on that. I, I I started becoming, I started realizing I was becoming the person I was supposed to be. You know, I'd sort of gone on all these offshoots because, you know, adventures and drug taking and craziness and, you know, na na na, all the life stuff. Um, but I remember when I had my first exhibition in London and I was sitting there, you know, most people, you know, when they, they, get into their art, you know, they're at school and they, they study it at art school or whatever. I was in my 40s, and well, late 30s, and I just realised this is who I was supposed to be. And it took me a while to get there, and it was my magical work that led me to that point. Beautiful. Mm. I find it really interesting in how much lately also on this show we speak about the art and its relation to magic and especially in this show once again certainly not for the first time we speak about that issue and i really think we should do more about that in also in the future those of you who have followed the show for a very long time from the very first episodes in season one you might remember that on the website i had a few artists that I presented in that first episode, in that first uh, season, because I think it's important to do that. But when I realized that um, not so many people then went onto those pages on the website to see the artwork, I stopped doing that. And I thought maybe I should start that again now that more listeners come to that show, many, many more than at the time back then. Maybe also more of you will go on that website. So, um, Two questions I have to ask you. First, would you as a listener be interested in having artwork on the Thoth Hermes website that regularly changes and that you could consult in addition to the web show, to the podcast and go and see those pieces of art on the website? And secondly, if you are an artist, a visual artist, like the musicians that I call for the music, do let me know if you have artwork that you would like me to present on the website together with your personality your biography of course send me some feedback on that i would really be interested uh, what you think about that and if i should return to that practice not only play music but also present arts on the website okay but now it's time for some music as i had said before and the second piece that i'm going to play for you today is called the Frozen Call. And as its name might suggest, it's a really ancient Nordic chant uh, sung by a young Swedish artist. She's a singer, a photographer, uh, also visual artist um, and filmmaker. And she lives in up in the far north. And this is a song that she created with inspiration from the call, as she says, into the unknown. It's a lovely piece, uh, uh, I think, and, well, just lean back and enjoy the frozen call.
the frozen call, an ancient Nordic chant. And I just realized that I had not even given you the name of this young Swedish artist uh, before you, before I, when I announced it, it is called Jon, she's called Jonna Jinton. As I said, she's from Sweden. She's a filmmaker, photographer, singer, and I think her music is really lovely. Okay. Without further ado, I think we shall now just return to our talk with Charlotte Rogers because she has many more interesting things to tell us. Um, when we will come back at the end of the interview, as always, there will be immediately the third piece of music that you are going to be presented to today. And this third piece is Wolf Moon, again, something that sounds a little bit Nordic, doesn't it? Um, but uh, I really like uh, that piece. It's Wolf Moon by the group Duel that you're going to hear. And now we are going to return to Bath in the United Kingdom and speak to Charlotte Rogers. It's almost difficult to, to add something to that. Um, I don't take it as an addition, but just as a, a, an additional question. Um, would you say that art, the visual art, as you created, um, is, is that or is any form of art like performing art or other forms of art that are not visual art, um, do they, in your point of view, have the same relation to magic? Or is that something that is linked to visual art in your point of view? Oh, no, I, I, I completely agree about... Um Seven years ago, eight years ago, my mother had died, so I sort of fell apart slightly. Um, mm. And I decided to just open myself up to completely different experiences. And there was a an artist, a performance artist called Ron Ette, and he did something in the UK, um, Gifts of the Spirit, uh, which – and I was intrigued by it because it used a lot of the things um, like glossolalia, automatic writing, trance work – but it was under the name of performance art. And he did a call out for people to be involved. And I went along as a magician. And he knew that. I, and everyone else there, you know, they obviously had their, their spiritual beliefs, but everyone else there, there were artists, performance artists. Mm -hmm. it, I might as well have been in a magical group. Except it didn't have the same structure. I did talk to Ron afterwards about things like, from my perspective, about opening and closing, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, and yeah. shutting down and everything. Having a circular uh, structure, yeah. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. um, because of yeah, necessary yeah. fallout, because you go into a space together, like we had several days build up, and then we did the actual performance, and then we walked away. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it, Dangerous thing mm, to do, yes. It was, yeah. it was phenomenal. It was it was yeah. like a ritual. There was no two ways about it. It was a ritual, um, and that was yeah, performance exactly. art. And I kept in touch with quite a few of those people, and that mm -hmm. it, that was one of the barriers that crumbled down. And that's when I started realizing about this mm -hmm. dancing serpents thing. Um, but oh yeah, mm -hmm. performance art is just across the board. Yeah, yeah. When did you leave New Zealand and came to the UK? When about was that? The f well, I left New Zealand, but I initially moved. I lived in Hong Kong for a while, and then I lived in Australia for right. a while. 
I lived in London at one stage and it was pretty grim then. That was Margaret Thatcher time and it all went horribly wrong. Mm. So I left. Um, So I first, I left New Zealand when, for the first time when I was about 16, but I left again pretty much for good. I think when I was 20, um, 2021 and moved to England and have lived here since I was about 24. So it's been a long time. I went back to New Zealand recently for the first time in about 30 years. Right. So it was then when when the art became an important part of your life. Can I put it like that? When about 30 years ago, that's about it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Something about Mm. England. Maybe England works for me. It's more neutral in many ways than New Zealand is. It's not as wild, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the country seems to work here for me. It it given me a safe space. Yeah, uh, our mutual friend Josephine McCarthy might take explanations for the land for the, from the land for that. Yeah, enough. Um, uh, when I first met her, it turns out that. When I first moved to Bath, or 30 years ago, 25 years ago, she was living next door to me, but we didn't Oh, really? We were just both, we were both living by the Roman baths in the centre of Bath, and we were living next door to each other, and we didn't realise it long time ago. Yeah, that's funny, that's funny. Um, Now we have to do a difficult exercise, uh, Charlotte, because um, it's difficult to explain visual art in an interview of course we don't have to explain your art maybe that's the wrong word and i just invite everybody who is listening also to go to the website and see the first see a few examples on on photographs of your art that we have there on the website of the south hermes podcast on the on the show notes and also of course the links and use those links to go to charlotte's pages where you see much more of her work but um Still, maybe you would like to give us a bit of an idea because your art is very particular and it's very much linked to your magical work, of course, as you just explained, and also in its expression. How, how if, if you had to explain to someone in, in two or three minutes your way of making art, how would you do that? I work with memory. Um, sometimes the memory is encapsulated in bone, and remnants of death. Sometimes it's in old objects. And I think right. that there's memory inherent in everything. And it's like a gateway. Um, mm-hmm. And it wants to be heard. It wants to be recognized. Sometimes it needs reorganizing or reforming. When you're working with bone, you're working with, say, a gateway that leads to the essence of a species. I would say, and you find that in a lot of traditions, for instance, uh, the skull, and it's used to communicate with humanity, really. But you need to strip away the individual that is attached to that. But it's the same with bones of animals. It leads to the essence of the species. Um, But again, especially with pets, you need to strip away the outer um, covering. I'm not just talking literally. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's your own preconceptions. This is another thing about magic and art because when you're working with these things also you're working with your own preconceptions so it's quite tantric in some ways you're confronting concepts of death uh but also there's memory inherent in objects um so i 
work with those. I don't plan in advance, for instance, and there's two types of things I make. One is more along the lines of a, a fetish or a spirit house. And I generally will just assemble a group of ingredients and I'll just switch off my head and that will be more channeled. Often my most powerful pieces are pretty rough. Um, and then the other pieces I make, which are, I use tiny, tiny pieces. They take a long time. They're more thought out, but again, I don't presuppose an end goal and they are still pretty channeled. Um, yeah, I do, I, I do them all in trance, really. I do them all in trance. Some are very, very rough um, and fetishy and some, yeah, it, it's very difficult to describe them, really. It's sort of dried up. Um, are, are they all creatures? Would you call them creatures or are they images or how would you how would you label them? I do tend to call a lot of them creatures. Um, mm -hmm. I have made houses and boats, but again, they're often with things that have been discarded. Like I may, I've got a doll's house from a 1930s doll's house that was given to me because when the objects are given to you, they have a lot of power attached to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like working with an old doll's house, this probably was made, I would say it's late 1930s, early 1940s. So the father that would have made it for his English child, the, you know, post-war, all the energy that would have gone into that and is still there. And so working with that was an absolute joy. So that would be more a spirit house. But right. I think my favorite pieces are the creatures and some of them do get stuff done. I, I tend to send them out there and they get stuff done. Um, Yeah, like I'm looking at one at the moment I made. I like using rusted nails. This one has like a vehicle that's made of a hollow bone. The head is a hagstone. It has a few little beads on it. And beads are great because like the concept of a spirit house, if you've got sort of anxious spirits around or things that are going to cause mischief, If you were like a lot of magicians or occultists, for instance, you collect a lot of tat and you bring a lot of tricky things into your house. So if you've got a spirit house with lots of intricate pieces, any tricky spirits that might cause problems in your house will just play around with these wee spirit creatures. And in the beach, okay. it keeps them busy. It's better than them yeah. causing floods and electrical overloads in the house, which okay. is known to happen for magical people. Yeah. Um, you, you, so go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Okay. Um, you call yourself uh, in some in some readings I did. You call yourself an animist, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, why? This was a tough one because I think years ago people started asking. You know, they want a sound bite of who you are and what you do and what tradition you practice. Yeah, sure. Want to put you in the drawer somehow? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, are, are you tantric? Um, are you a thelemite? 
you know, etc. Mm. And as I articulated earlier, I've never been a big joiner. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I got, I got involved in a couple of um, tantric traditions like a mukos and everything. But when it mm. comes to the core, I just wanted to strip everything away. I just wanted to find out underneath all of that, you know, what I was all about. And I realized animist. Everything has memory and everything has some form of life. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Even. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I I just went through a stage when I got sick of all the, the ritual tools and the titles and the stuff and I just wanted to strip it right back. And that's when I realized that, that you know, that's what I am and what I always have mm-hmm. been. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said earlier when you talked about magic and talked about sexual magic mm-hmm. and we, we're talking about young women and mm-hmm. stuff um, that sometimes it's harder to do the softer things than to go into the hard and rough things mm-hmm. right and now you just said that some of your pieces and creatures are are really rough mm. right so do you have the same experience when creating your art that when you want to or when you're when you're led to create something that is maybe softer as a piece of art mm-hmm. that that is more difficult to do than than the rough stuff i think it's a matter of perception because things i might think are soft other people might not i know that people don't regard my work as creepy as it used to be some certainly do, yeah. Mm, um, because I don't work as much with roadkill. Um, yeah. Partially, it's not to do with softness because even though the irony was the things that are really rough and are really creepy looking, like the ones, the creatures that I've put together from roadkill and that I've used taxidermium, yeah. they're the ones mm. that actually, strangely enough, require the greatest compassion and the greatest softness. Because mm-hmm. when I've, for instance, found a roadkill badger um, or a roadkill animal mm. and I've taken it home and I've taken, you know, taken its little coat off, you know, because mm. it is, it's like when you skin an animal, it's like taking your coat off um, and and felt the weight of it. That is the most compassionate and soft thing that is actually, but then you produce a so-called artwork that is rough. Like I did one with the badger's um, head, mummified head, and it had died very violently. But the amount of compassion and softness to do that was unreal. Um, mm. But emotionally, I'm, I find it harder and harder to work with roadkill. But saying that... There isn't as much round anymore because the animals are all dying. Uh, because I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've yeah, yeah. lived in this area for years and um, there's, it's not that they're getting road sense. It's, there's not the animals anymore. Not the animals anymore, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, well, what can you say? So in yeah. some ways my work yeah. could be seen as getting softer, I suppose. Mm. I have used pink in a few pieces as well, actually, but that was only because I ran out of some of the colours. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know if I've particularly got more mellow as I've got older. 
Um, I, there was, I, I found a dead animal the other day and I didn't take it home with me because I, I just, okay. I just couldn't, it was couldn't. midsummer and I buried it and I, I just couldn't do it. It was a little mole with most beautiful wee okay. paws and I just mm. could not do it. Um, okay. So that's, that's the irony. I, it, a piece of art that would have had a lot of, I suppose, emotional punch for the viewer and come out as really hard yeah. and very probably quite dark would have inquired, uh, taken a lot of tenderness to do. Mm -hmm, sure. I don't know if that answers yeah. the question, though. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not directly, but indirectly, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but you just said something about your about people who look at your art or maybe buy your art. Um, when you create your art, do you have an intention to to reach somebody or some not some particular person, but some kind of person in particular? Do you think of the audience when you when you do it? Or is the the work that you do, the trance that you are in when you do that strictly related a relation between you and the work itself? I never think of the audience. Mm -mm. Okay. No, I never think of the audience. Uh, it actually intrigues me after I make something who the piece appeals to. And then after I've created a piece, that's when I realize what it's for. Because if you empty your head, <clears throat> so to speak, and do something automatically, you've still got all what's going on around you. You know, like at the moment, the pieces I'm making at the moment, they're going to be influenced by by lockdown, by the media. No matter how much I switch off my head, head, there's going to be fear, there's going to be Black Lives Matter, there's going to be all sorts of stuff going on. And yeah. then I'm in the yeah. countryside, sort of. So there'll be there's a whole lot of animals that have been born in spring that have had been born with no knowledge of human being or traffic. So that will come out in the pieces. Um, okay. And then afterwards, I'll look at what I've made and I'll, I'll realize well, these pieces are to protect against the element that's at the back of my head, and I've done that and I've used that piece to do this and this piece to protect. Like the piece I made, pieces I made at the beginning of lockdown were very different from the pieces I made at the end. The pieces at the beginning were for protection, pieces at the end for action for the next phase of, of living that we need to do you know then we've got a battle ahead of us so right right absolutely mm. absolutely mm -hmm. uh, is that the same is that also true for magic uh, when you do magic is i mean it's difficult to define the audience mm -hmm. there but is the aim is the aim clear uh, while you're doing it or or not well there's different reasons for doing magic, you know, there's there's a maintenance magic yeah, exactly. where you've got yeah. your whoever it is that you work with and they need their maintenance yeah. and recognition and treats or whatever, yeah. conversations. Yeah. Um, and then, and I rarely do results magic. I don't know why, but I very rarely do it. Um, and then there's different forms of divination, which, again, I'm not very good at doing divinations for myself. I, I mm -hmm not my thing. Um, and then there's connecting at important times, which is just like having a little party or celebration to, you know, acknowledge relationships. 
right. there's all those things. And then there's there's my pieces, which is gifts being offered to me from another realm. And I see them, I accept them, and I make something else and I, I give a voice. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then someone hears that voice and they might, might want to buy it or I give it to them, which like many artists, I've been known to do that because it's the right home to go to. Um, right. Hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Hmm. I don't think we would have a complete picture of Charles Rogers if we don't spoke about if we didn't speak about uh, uh, about uh, the, the, the writings and uh, you said even in the beginning that before you became a visual artist you you had thought that your expression would be more in writing and it still is actually because your blog your and you produced books mm-hmm. several books and um, so what about that how, how is that today for you um, is it is it at the same level uh, and uh, work of art for you that you do, or is it something different? Um, I don't know. Writing is an odd one. I th- I th- became rebellious a bit, as I said earlier. You know, when I, I threw out all my tools, you know, and I did I didn't want yeah. to work with magical tools anymore um, for a while. Anyway, I found words a limitation at one stage. Um, yeah, a lot of magical writing for me was quite ac- academic, even though it was recounting experiences. And I did mm-hmm. a lot of articles and essays, and I still occasionally do them. And I do my blog. But the books that I wrote were like a trilogy, I suppose. So it was necessary, you know. Um, so there was blood, death, yeah. and my own history. Yeah. And so that yeah. was like a magical trilogy. In, in a manner of speaking. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking I should go back and do more, but it just doesn't. I, I, I do at this point just find it more limiting than work I, the way I can express artistically. Um, mm-hmm. well, like at the moment, I've been, it's a bit of a digression, I'll quickly say this. So uh, when lockdown happened, I started staging rituals with three-dimensional objects like um, animations. I was making stages for them, and it, it was incredibly empowering, and it was a lot of fun. And I was able to manipulate form in a greater way than I ever had with words. But, you know, whether it's just my I'm not able to express to the same extent in words, I don't have the ability or the use of language. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I still mm-hmm. write. Um, and yeah, I, I get a lot of pleasure. I've got a few articles, you know, hither and thither, and and I I love collaborations. I I thought they were, I you know, I thought that working with other people in collaborations was a bit of a pain, but actually I love it, and I really bounce off it. And I, I've had the pleasure of of working with some amazing writers and artists. I've been putting together um. Uh, Zine, is that how you pronounce it? Zine or Zine? With an American friend of mine. Zine, yeah. Zine, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, so there's you know, still things going on, but it's all different facets of the same whole. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. That's, the, that's the point. Yeah. Right. But I'm having yeah. a little bit more fun with. I, I feel like it can be, yeah, just really let rip in a way. Words at the moment, no. 
Right. Well, in any case, I advise everyone to go onto your blog because because it's really uh, it's really very interesting, and uh, we have heard a little excerpt of that blog before we started the interview in this show. So that gives people an idea what you write about, and then I think they should see more of that. Um, I want to come to that uh, book uh, of the trilogy, maybe not to the book itself, that's not the point, but to the content of that book about blood, mm -hmm. because you mentioned that also earlier uh, when we spoke about magic. And um, I don't know, maybe maybe this is just me, maybe it just jumps at my eye because you don't often see blood and sacrifice as a as part of magical ritual nowadays right um what does that mean for you what can, can you give us a bit of an insight in your in your view on that and what it means to you what it what did it mean to you earlier and today has that changed um let me see initially i approached it i suppose well partially because I menstruated. Um, I worked with my blood within my ritual work. And also I had hepatitis C. So that okay. added a whole new element, both to any blood mm -hmm. work I did, but also to any sexual magical work I did. Um, yeah. And me being me, I just decided to explore it from every angle to the nth degree. And I also wanted mm. to amalgamate other people's experiences as well. Um, and, you know, some of it is old hat, you know, like looking at ritual tattooing, scarification, etc. cetera. Um, and, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have known some people who survived the AIDS crisis in America in the 80s but worked with their blood and their art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which was – very groundbreaking then, but it sort of, but they, they survived at a time when there was no real medication yeah. available to treat them. And that, that interested me. So I, I just wanted to really explore it. And also I, I know people who do ritual sacrifice for their belief system. And I'm the most, despite the roadkill thing, you know, I'm, I'm such a animal lover. Um, yeah. And I'm a vegetarian, but I respect what they do. So I, you know, I talked to them and then I knew someone else who worked with traditions that do do blood sacrifice, but he changed the tradition. Okay. So he didn't do blood sacrifice. Um, so it, it was a fascinating thing to put together. Um, and also how cycles that the cycle of menstruation can influence magical practice like at certain times i'm not just talking in sexual terms but also sometimes a better for meditation not just for the person who's bleeding but also for any one they might be working for so it was mm -hmm. it was very very interesting and ironically um i i published the book and um i stopped menstruating I, I, I just <laughs> crashed through this very early menopause. And by the age of 37, I was done and dusted. And then, okay. and then a few years later, I cleared my hepatitis C. So after all these years of having, you know, it just, um, so the whole thing changed completely for me. Um, Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. But, it, became a, it became a vehicle somehow. Yeah. 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 I, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it was it was a very interesting thing to do. Um, 
And I look back now on some of the work I did then, and I, I, I don't know if it's wanting to prove something, but again, it, it was part of my own personal initiation thing. But some of the stuff that I did at that phase of my practice was pretty hardcore. And I look back now and I just think, wow. But it got to me to where I am now. Um, sure. Yeah. So, and some of it was probably spiritually a bit tricky. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for the spirits I work with. Yeah, probably more. I, I, yeah. I did tend to be, and I probably still am, a little bit playful sometimes magically, which is good, but sometimes it, it's perhaps not the best way to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see, I see what you mean. Um, now we spoke about Charlotte uh where she is today we spoke about a lot where she came from thank you also for your openness and your sharing that with us um maybe in order to finish that talk which is a fascinating one um you can give us a little bit an idea of where charlotte rogers is going what your plans are what 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 you think where the magical and artistic development is carrying you if you can say that but maybe an intention uh, or, or uh, whatever you know on your mind about that well this is um i think for the first time ever at the beginning of this year the end of last year the beginning of this year i decided to plan my life um which really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i made some major life changes um which okay. yeah around january february but it wasn't the best time to make plans anyway yeah I'm going to university to study anthropology in, oh, wow. in, well, it was September. Now it's October. I think university is going to be a new world because I never finished my education. And um, mm -hmm. maybe a bit, as I was saying earlier about my frustration sometimes with language, perhaps not taking me where I want it to take me. Um, yeah. And we'll see how it goes. But I think I've met some of the other people taking courses there and it looks quite exciting. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, the whole animus thing and animus belief systems and I, I'm really, really excited about it, but we'll see if university comes to pass. That's, and then, yeah, um, that's great. Then there, there's a few other things. As I said, I've been playing with the, these animations and creating tableaus. You know, I've always loved, you know, the European idea of making like an inset frame and they're often used mm -hmm. in religious items. And I've, I've made things like that before, but making them as a, a backdrop. And then I've always wanted to actually animate my creatures with that sort of backdrop. And I started doing that in lockdown and it is intensely, well, it can be used in a psychodynamic way, which also could be seen as very magical. So I've been playing a lot with that. Um, and initially I was using it as like the battle of the coronavirus. So I've got something a bit like the, the HDA, the Holy Guardian Angel, battling the corona yeah. demon. Um, okay. And so I've been playing with that. And I really would like to take it further because it's fun. But, you know, it's a bit like it's a bit like working with dreams, isn't it? Uh, or with lucid dreaming, 
you know, it's it's taking components of yourself and yeah, playing around and affecting change and na na na. So yeah, they're yeah. the main things and planting lots of vegetables because I might need my vegetable garden. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. that's the real part of life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. interesting times. Interesting times. It's a cliche. Certainly, are. certainly yeah. are. Yeah, we and we don't know where they're going yet. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think no. thirty years ago I would have been ready for this. I think I was pretty psyched up thirty years ago, actually, when I was living on the west coast of New Zealand. We're all ready for the, you know, decline of the modern mm-hmm. civilization. Um, now I'm not so much, <laughs> but I hope something good comes out of it. I really do. Mm. Yeah, well, there's always something good in everything, yeah. I think. So, but maybe that's my hermetic point. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's change. Yeah, it's change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly there were many good things in this hour that we passed together. Thank you so much uh, for sharing all of that with, with me and with all our listeners out there. Um, it was great to have you, Charlotte. Thank you so much. And um, I wish you all the best, not only for university, but for all your plans and, and not planned events mm-hmm. that will come up. Thank you for giving us your time and being with us here today. And uh, well, good luck in all your ventures. And thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Maturity. Yeah.
Moon by the Dutch dark rock group Duel, or maybe Doll, maybe that's how they pronounce the name if they are from the Netherlands. And it's from their brand new song, well, rather brand new song from February, I believe it is, from their upcoming album Summerland. And I really liked that piece. I thought I would share it with you. I hope you enjoyed our talk to Charlotte Rogers. I think it was very deep. She had very highly interesting things to say. I like her non-demonocional approach to things very much. I believe that's an important voice that she has. And um, I thank her very much for the time that we spent together. Do go to the website, do go to the Thos Hermes website and see her art there. Um, it's really worth it. It's very special. It's uh, very like what she had to say to us about arts in general and in particular about her arts. So um, that was Charlotte and that was the end of this week's episode. It was great to have you and it's wonderful like each week to produce this show for you. I must say I learned so much and it's, it's great that you give me the possibility to do that and I hope you'll be back next week. And what is next week's program? Well, I really think you should look, be looking forward again for next week's show because there is, I would call him an almost historical figure who we will have as a guest on next week's show. It's Peter J. Carroll. Peter J. Carroll, who was one of the co-founders of what we call Chaos Magic today. I would say we can call him that um, in any case he's a really interesting guy we had a fun talk um, when we chatted together and you should be looking forward to hear Peter J. Carroll next week on episode 4 of this season 5 of the Thought Hermes podcast for today that's all I can say have a safe week have a good week to come um, Come back next week and if you have some spare time in between and if you have not yet listened to all the previous shows that we have here, there are many interesting people you can listen to and you should go on the website or on some of the podcast providers and just listen also to those older shows. I really think there are some gems in there. Great. So, but for today, what can I say? Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.